This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's new book titled What Happened. And she blamed her loss on Comey's intervention in the race. Russia and emails. Sexism and misogyny are still endemic. Clinton says she let millions of Americans down. There are those who are very glad she's doing this. And there are those who are not. You know, I take ultimate responsibility for the loss. I was the candidate and I'll never, you know, I'll never get over that. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, this week, Hillary Clinton is out with her new book, What Happened? And we are back relitigating the 2016 election and so much more. I mean, she lays it out pretty bare in this memoir. It's a memoir with lots of twists and turns. I mean, people are both outraged by it and grabbing it and reading it page by page ferociously. Some people are embracing it, loving it. Uh, it's another Hillary moment. I mean, let's just think of the life of Hillary here. I mean, ever since she stepped up as the graduation speaker at Wellesley. For too long, our leaders have viewed politics as the art of the possible. And the challenge now is to practice politics is the art of making what appears to be impossible possible. Right into working on the Watergate committee. I mean, she's been there at every great moment across the second half of the 20th century. You know, she marries Bill Clinton. They're in Arkansas. She is, she is as important in Arkansas as he is. You know, I came, up, came to Arkansas of my own free will. You know, I was not born here. And I fell in love with the state and decided to stay, and, and Bill and I were married. Uh, I think that is a kind of indication of what we're trying to do in the state, that the time of feeling that Arkansas was in any way uh, second to anybody is beginning to disappear. And I want to do everything that I can uh, to help that go as fast as we can make it disappear. You know, he loses, he wins, he comes back, he becomes president, she becomes the most active first lady, partner of a president, certainly since Eleanor Roosevelt and different than Eleanor Roosevelt in so many ways. She does, remember she did health care? The message is simple. It's time to bring about fundamental change, control our nation's soaring health care costs, and provide security for American families again. You know, some people say that was a mistake, but she ran the biggest policy initiative of that man's presidency. She's there during the days of horror, the American heartbreak of that Lewinsky scandal. Scandal. She gets knocked down. I mean, they call Bill Clinton the comeback kid. She's the comeback kid. She runs for the United States Senate in New York. She wins. 62 counties, 16 months, three debates, two opponents, and six black pantsuits later, because of you, here we are. She becomes a signature legislator during the first part of the 20th century, crossing the aisle, doing bipartisan legislation and change. She runs against Barack Obama in the ferocious head-to-head -head struggle of the 2008 election, loses... And then she makes her final comeback in 2016. I mean, this woman has lived in the psyche of American life. And here we have what may be her last star turn on the public stage. Here with this book to talk about the great loss of 2016, 
she will move on to next chapters of her life. And she says, I'm not going to give up politics, but I'll no longer be a candidate. And the Clintons are kind of fading now. And so I think it's a good time to think about their long legacy, so much a part of us, certainly during my adult life. And what we now can see, maybe that we couldn't see during the heat of battle. And that's why I think it's going to be an exciting and interesting week for us to dig deep. So what are you feeling right now, Heather? Well, I'm astonished at the extraordinary vitriol with which people are meeting the idea of her having written a book. I mean, after all, that's what politicians do. They run for office. They win. They lose. When they get out of office, they write a book. It's more unusual not to do one than it is to do one. And the sheer fury with which people have met the idea that she would actually still participate in politics is astonishing. She is, after all, the person who won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes, by 2% of the population. And it seems worth taking into consideration her voters and what her voters were interested in. And the reasons that people are pushing against her are obviously partly related to her sex. But I actually think it has a, a lot to do with the way that that women in politics and women in public life have been characterized really throughout her entire adult life. And the fact that she is daring to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to sit down. No, I'm going to keep on talking even though this guy is breathing down my neck. No, you can't shut me up is really symbolic for a lot of women who have not previously participated in politics or have felt that their voices have been silenced. And they see her and they say, you know, I'm not going to be shut up either. And that's why this moment is so important, I think. Well, let's go to our guest this week. Jay Newton-Small is a contributor to Time Magazine. She was on the road covering the 2016 race. She's the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, a fabulous book. Jay Newton-Small, welcome to the show. Ron, thanks for having me, and Heather as well. Okay, Jay. So when it comes to Hillary, start it out. What happened? Uh, not just what you felt along the way and wrote about quite eloquently in the days after uh, the loss in November, but but how do you see it now? What happened here? Oh well, I mean, I think she clearly exhaustively writes about it, um, and it, and was clearly a very cathartic process for her. And look, a lot of us never predicted this. Um, we didn't. Most people on election day thought for sure Hillary Clinton was going to win. I. I was a little worried. I think I, right before the election, wrote a piece about non-college educated white women and how that vote was swinging pretty heavily towards Donald Trump. And that actually ended up being the decisive vote that put him over the top. And he won them by an historic margin. It was 28 percentage points compared to, I mean, this is a group that traditionally goes Republican, but that's compared to Mitt Romney, who won them in 2012 by just 20 points, right? So he increased Mitt Romney's already historic margin by eight percentage points. And so this was a group of women that really voted strongly for Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton. And that trend I wrote about right before the election saying it's a very worrying trend. And if they turn out in large numbers, she could lose the race. But it was really shocking, I think, that she did lose the race. And certainly in this book, she talks, she, she lays a lot of blame on others, on Trump himself, on Russia, misogyny and sexism. But she also lays blame on herself. And when I interviewed her for Broad Influence, and it was the beginning of her campaign, and she was about nine months, eight months into the campaign. And she talked about how hard it was being a female candidate. And I think that she still feels that way and writes very clearly in this book that if she had been a man, she would not have lost. You know, I guess the question that keeps coming up is about especially those women. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I've heard this a thousand times since. How could those women 
after all that had happened during the campaign, all that Trump had done, all the misogyny that he so powerfully, disastrously, darkly expressed, how could they be voting for him? What did we not see at the time? And what now is apparent to us? So this is the one demographic that swung throughout the election. So if you look back during the campaign, men didn't move almost at all uh, throughout the election. They were always pretty strongly for Trump. College-educated women, frankly, did not move very much during the election. They were always very strongly for Hillary. The only group that really swung was non-college-educated women. And the reason, and, and they swung largely, um, so for example, right after the Kizir Khan being a Democratic National Convention, the, the Gold Star family sort of scandal, they swung very hard away from Donald Trump, and Hillary was winning going into the summer. Then, you know, Donald Trump hired Kellyanne Conway as his campaign manager. She got him on message, trotted out a women's agenda with Ivanka, sent him out to black churches in Detroit to show, frankly, non-college-educated white women that he wasn't racist. Um, and that worked. And by the time we went into the first debate, they were almost tied. Uh, and that was thanks to non-college-educated white women swinging back towards Donald Trump. Then came the groping scandal, right? And they swung very hard against Donald Trump for that. To the degree where if you look, there was an Atlantic PRI poll that came out October 17th before the election, and that had them tied 40-40 amongst non-college educated white women, which is striking. I mean, if she had tied him with that demographic, that would have been a huge loss for a Republican. I mean, that really, that would have been a 20 point swing away from Romney in 2012. And that's just enormous, right? And Hillary in her book talks about how she believes that James Comey's reinvestigation, reopening of the investigation of her emails in the final days of the election sort of gave them an excuse to vote against her. Looking, you know, the research that I did for my book and look, talking to women voters, talking to women's groups, the reason why I think that non-college educated white women voted against Hillary or women in general are just, they're much more empathetic voters than men. And so men look at a candidate and they, male or female, and they think, oh, they would make a good candidate or not, right? Um, they like them, they don't. Women do the same for male candidates. They think, oh, I like them, or I don't. But with female candidates, they actually imagine themselves in that woman's place. And they say, huh, if I were her, I would not have made those decisions. And they're much more judgmental about women candidates than they are about any other candidates, I mean, male candidates. And so if they make decisions that they don't agree with, so Hillary Clinton, in Hillary Clinton's case, it's uh, a variety of reasons, whether it's Benghazi or emails or Monica Lewinsky standing by her band, you name it, there's just so much baggage there. They just say, I would never make those decisions or she's too elite and she doesn't, I don't, I can't see myself in her shoes. I, I don't relate to her or they think she looks down on them. There's all these reasons. And then women empathize too much. And that becomes a, a real liability for a female candidate. And basically they don't, that, that, for, that moves them to vote against Hillary and not necessarily for Donald Trump. Well, one of the things that I think is a problem when we try and, and relitigate, as we said, the 2016 election is that there are so many moving pieces. That is, what we're looking at right now is white women and how they swung. But of course, women in general broke very heavily for Hillary Clinton and not for Donald Trump. And we also have the problem of disfranchisement in a lot of states and different demographics that are being moved in certain ways. We got the problem that we really haven't been able to factor in yet of how white women were moved by Facebook, who, of course, are a key demographic for that particular act of disinformation that was coming, that it appears was coming from Russia now that's unfolding right now. So it's a little hard to sit here and say and, and, and look at the 2016 election, I think, and make comments about America based on that. Again, 
again, remembering the fact that she did win the popular vote. So to sort of say Americans are all miserable because they turn against uh, Hillary Clinton and in favor of a sexist is really not entirely fair. But the one piece that I keep thinking is worth looking at is the fact the world has changed. We're now seven months into this administration. And Hillary Clinton has written a book. And the vitriol is bubbling up again over this particular individual. And and why? I mean, is she being treated differently, do you think, Jay, than any of the other failed candidates? I can't remember anybody saying that Mitt Romney should shut up and go away or Bob Dole or John Kerry or Al Gore. Even Bernie Sanders wrote a book himself. And Bernie Sanders, who didn't even win the nomination, is still seemingly welcome to pontificate about the direction of a party to which he doesn't even belong. And yet when this woman who is really uh, has has had a front seat to American history in the 20th and 21st century and has been a major player in politics, dares to write a book, the hatred that is being heaped on her, I just find as a person who studies political memoirs, I read them all when they come out, I don't think I've ever seen this before. And I can't imagine why. Do you have any ideas about that, Jay? Uh, well, certainly yeah, the sexism piece of it is, has always been there, right? And this, this just even covering this campaign, the Bernie bros, being on Twitter as a woman, female correspondent covering this campaign was just hazardous. And, and and I think you see that now with this book. I mean, I will also say that Mitt Romney didn't write a book right after losing the election about basically what an idiot Barack Obama is, right? I mean, that's sort of the gist of this book. Um, and to some degree, um, Al Gore wrote a book about global warming and did a movie. You know, this is this is very personally a book about how she believes the country basically made the wrong choice and, and how she blames herself for not being a better choice for them. Clearly, she believes clearly that this that it that the choice that they made is is pretty disastrous. But it is um it is a pretty extreme the reaction. And I have to I do have to say, and she's absolutely within her rights to say what she wants. But but so Jay, you said something early on that that I think maybe plays into this and is really worth exploring. And that is, you mentioned the position of women on Twitter, and they are being silenced in that sphere with really hateful and horrible stuff that seems it seems to be a gendered thing. And I wonder, what does it mean for them to demonize somebody like her as the Antichrist, to take down women in those very personal, very sexual ways in public spheres? Why in this moment is the idea of a woman having a political voice so incredibly offensive to so many people that they need to be erased or chased out of that arena? It's hard to know. I mean, like, it, this election was so weird in that way, and it's really hard to know. Um, so, I mean, just to backtrack for a little bit, I mean, for a minute, like when she ran in 2008, Hillary ran very much as a man, I argue. And and she ran as, you know, her slogan was ready from day one. She campaigned with generals. She talked about how she was ready to take the call at three o'clock in the morning. She crossed the capability line, but now she crossed too far over and had become a bitch. And so she was seen as too tough. And so she had to be likable again. And so she became Grandma Hillary. Yeah, look, she uh, ran this very feminine campaign. Yeah, I mean, I th- and, no, I and, think you're right on with that. And, you know, and, and, and I think it goes right to this clip we're about to hear. Uh, Jay, Heather, this this is a clip of Hillary talking about misogyny in the 2016 race. And I think it goes right to the point you're making, Jay, that she ran this time as a woman. Certainly misogyny played a role. I mean, that just has to be admitted. With men, success and ambition are correlated with likability. So the more successful a man is, uh, the more likable he becomes. With a woman, guess what? It's the exact opposite. 
So the more successful and therefore ambitious a woman is, the less likable she becomes. I, I do think that there was a, a very strong reaction, um, and, and her campaign debated this enormously, I know, on the inside, and certainly she wrote about it in, in the book, about how much, how hard that she should push the woman angle, right? How hard she should push the historic nature of her campaign. And she wrote that President Obama pushed her to, to promote that angle and said that she hadn't done it enough in 08 the way he had as the first black president. Um, and that he, you know, and they made the calculation that by pushing it, they wouldn't alienate men and that they would bring on board enough women to, to really, to win the race, to win the election, because women make up 53% of the electorate and in presidential elections vote on average 10% more than men do. What they didn't expect, and I think, and didn't realize is that it's like Hillary says, that the more successful you are, the harder people judge you, right? And the more sort of you, the more capable you become, the more of a bitch you become, frankly. And Younger voters were really put off by her because they just didn't feel that she made the case well enough, that she was charismatic enough. Um, and she really struggled to soar in the same way that Barack Obama did. So Obama could talk every day about the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice, and people would swoon. He could soar at 30,000 feet. When we elect women to executive office, we never elect women who soar. That is just has not happened in this world. So you think about the women who've been elected Angela Merkel, Theresa May, even Margaret Thatcher, Dilma Rousseff. These are leaders who are very pragmatic. They are women who get the job done. They are women who are seen as fixers and who control the purse strings and are very responsible and sober, but they do not deliver soaring oratory and they do not inspire to that level, right? And, and that is really hard for a woman to do. It's actually very, one of the most difficult things a woman can do as a speaker. You know, Bernie Sanders could yell at you for 40 minutes and, you want, and you'd be like, yeah, yell at me for 40 more. Hillary would raise her voice and everyone would go, oh my gosh, why is mom screaming at me? The, the necks on our the hairs in the back of our neck kind of raise and we're not used to hearing women raise their voice in power. And so, um, and that's what's really challenging and hard to do for her is to run a historic campaign as a woman, promoting herself as the first woman when we are so stymied as a society from appreciating and celebrating powerful women. The, the, the thing that's interesting about this moment is it is this unique moment when there has been this extraordinary gender gap in voting. It's a 24-point gender gap, meaning that women and men have a 24-points different spread between voting for Trump or voting for Clinton. And what that suggests to me is we're looking at a very different political moment. And this is fascinating as a political historian because the whole concept originally of women voting came from the idea that they would vote like their husbands. And in fact, they did so until 1980. And the story behind that is actually quite interesting because, of course, women did not have the vote before the Civil War except in limited states. And immediately after the Civil War, after women had participated in the war as spies and working in factories and working in fields and raising money for the cause and, of course, giving their sons and brothers to the cause, they felt that they should have a say in their society. And Wyoming took them at their word. And the territory of Wyoming gave women the vote in 1869. And people joked at the time because they said, oh, there's only like three women out there. So, you know, it doesn't make any difference anyway. You know, and they, basically the, the argument was we might as well give them the vote because maybe more women will come out here and the men who live in Wyoming might find wives. Well, the next year uh, in 19, 1870, um, Utah gave women the vote. And Utah gave women the vote with the idea that women would go to the polls and vote against polygamy. 
That's when polygamy was still legal in Utah, and they wanted to get rid of polygamy. So the legislators figured, well, if we give women the vote, of course they're going to vote against polygamy. But women go to the polls, and they vote like their husbands, and they vote in favor of polygamy. And that was the first moment at which people went, oh, wait a minute. Maybe women really are simply going to echo the votes of their husbands. And from 1870 on, actually women's voting drops down for a while. There aren't new laws for women voting. But the assumption is that you want to have give women the vote so long as they're going to be voting like their husbands. You basically look at the fact that you're giving their husbands two votes. That changes in 1980. For the first time in 1980, we see a gender gap in voting. Women vote against Ronald Reagan and and vote for the Democrats. And you start to see a split toward the Democrats, women voting Democratic, until in this final, and that continues to increase until with this election, you've got women sliding heavily toward the Democrats. And this is one of the reasons that I identify this moment as this crucial moment for women taking the four in politics. When you have a gender split that extraordinarily high between the Republican and the Democratic candidates, and again, of course, there's actual sexism and the misogyny of this election feeding into that, but you also also have women siding for a particular political vision, the one that is advanced by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, rather than the one being advanced by Trump and the Republicans at this moment. And this suggests to me that we're looking at a new political era in which women are going to come to the fore and really drive politics. I love your description of that because it does show that Ronald Reagan's change, the change he brought to the Republican Party of summoning the American cowboy, this notion of rugged individualism, you know, maybe a retrograde view of what a man is or ought to be, uh, is right at the point in which the divide starts to occur. And from that moment, women recognize that these policies weren't necessarily going to do wonderful things for them, women and, of course, minorities as well. And that's borne out certainly by the economic statistics, which really show the, the wealth stratifying dramatically upward beginning in 1980. But Jay Heather, stand by. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. I'm here with Jay Newton-Small and, as always, Heather Cox-Richardson. Uh, Heather, who from history, what women from American history can you pair up with Hillary? Does she remind you of any? Or are there women who you might like to sit at the table with us right now to talk about what the hell happened? Well, there's lots of those people. But um, one of the things that has always interested me about Hillary is it seems to me that she really was looking for a government that responded to the needs of all Americans. And in that, she had a predecessor, and a predecessor who was enormously important in American history, and that was Frances Perkins. And Frances Perkins was the first woman to sit in the cabinet. She was appointed by FDR, and she served from 1933 to 1945, which I believe remains the longest anybody has served at labor in the cabinet. Uh, My mother used to say that FDR was the meanest man in the world because he kept Frances Perkins in labor from 1933 to 1945. It's a pretty good line. But... She got involved in issues of improving society and improving the conditions of workers as well as of women. And when FDR put her into position at labor, she becomes one of the key people in designing the New Deal, the New Deal that gave us laws against child labor, that gave us the Social Security Act, uh, the Federal Works Progress Administration. She gave us and shaped all these 
aspects of the American government that created an activist government that protected workers, women, children, that gave us an activist state that made America a safer and a healthier place to be. And that strikes me as being quite a bit like what Clinton has always tried to do and what younger women are now not only trying to put into place, but also are living themselves as they themselves are mothers in the workplace, for example. And, you know, Perkins is one of those people who sort of has fallen off the face of people's general knowledge. But, you know, she was actually my vote for the person who belonged on the $20 bill because she was one of our most important American politicians. And our money usually reflects politicians or people who've been in the government. And she had such an enduring effect on American society. And I wonder if some of the women out there now running for office are the next Frances Perkins. Jay, a lot of people are looking at women like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Senator Kamala Harris as possible presidential candidates. How do these younger women differ from Hillary Clinton? I do think, you know, that there is this very interesting new generation of female politicians who have very different, frankly, standards and very different messaging. Very, they're just a very different kind of breed of politician than the Hillary Clintons of the world who came up at a, at a different time, um, frankly. And, and things have changed enormously in politics. I do think we have made progress. And, and, and I know progress has not been enough and everybody feels frustrated that it's not more. But um, look, you know, my book is about critical mass, reaching critical mass in the government and in the private sector. And, and, and all three branches of the government are actually doing better than the private sector, right? So the private sector has been stuck at about 20%, uh, 21% representation in the C-suites and about 17% on corporate boards for a decade that just has not moved the needle very much. But the government has actually, you know, we've got 20% of women now in Congress. Um, well, in the last administration, I don't know what it looks like now, but in the last administration, you had 30% of the administration of, in terms of political appointees and upper level civil service as um, as women. And then 37% now of the federal bench, including 40% of state judges are women. Well, let's, let's go to the giant butt here. And it's a biggie. And it is a, a misogynist in the White House. I mean, <laughs> let's be frank about it here. Uh, this man was not damaged ultimately in the way people expected him to be by all those ferociously misogynistic comments. Um, you know, that uh, tracked him all the way through the campaign. People, you know, I went to a, a ton of Trump rallies in, um, in the 2016 election and asked a lot of women why they were voting for Trump. You know, if he was, especially after the groping allegations came out and all of the sort of access Hollywood lewdness. And, and over and over again, women would say, oh, you know, he doesn't really mean it. He just, and like, frankly, a, a bunch of them would say, He's just saying it for the ratings, as if it, as if the election were a television show that they were watching, a reality TV show, and they were just expecting this uh, because it was shocking and it was this is what people said to get attention and ratings, but they didn't really mean it. And they would always point to his daughter Ivanka as Exhibit A of the fact that he must clearly support and empower women because he clearly supports and empowers his his daughter, and then she is his right hand woman running his business, and and so therefore you know. He is not sexist. He he doesn't really mean all these things that he is joking about or says. And, and that's sort of the way women would laugh it off. Do you think that their opinion has changed in the last seven months as they've watched uh, so few women being appointed to office and the sort of erasure of women from public view in behind his signing statements and things like that and the the, the ongoing comments that he's made? Do you think women have changed since then? 
Um, well, I think certainly if you look at the polls, um, young women have changed, right? So all those young women who didn't show up for Hillary, didn't show up at the polls, millennials who believed that there would definitely be a woman president in their lifetime. Why did it have to be Hillary? Oh, there's no big difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Polling shows that they really regret that. Well, we talked a lot about steps forward and steps back. I can't, or Heather can't take a step forward and step back at the same instant, but in the (laughs) psyche of a nation, I suppose we can, um, uh, Jay Newton Small, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jay is a contributor, as I said, to Time Magazine. She's the author of Broad Influence How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jay. Thank you for having me. Heather, a wonderful conversation. Boy, you're great on gender. I mean, I learn a lot every time I hear you lay it out. You can't do American history and not do gender. Same way you can't do, not do it without doing race and class. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, been a delight talking to you today. Always a pleasure. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. We'll see you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakout and carry on at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.